Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Have you ever thought about going into business with a good friend? Steve Grace did, and he really doesn't recommend it. For all the times we've heard of partnership success stories, there are plenty of cases where things have just not worked out. And in some cases, like Steve's, relationships can even be lost along the way. In this episode, we'll cover both of Steve's businesses, how he got into these companies, how his partnerships were formed, and how he managed to even achieve eight-figure growth. But what really hits home for me was how these hugely successful businesses really struggled when it came time to exit. Steve and I reflected on the exact moment where everything would unknowingly go wrong. He candidly shares how friendships can break down and the impact this can have if you're looking to sell. Most importantly, Steve shares what you need to do to avoid some of these pitfalls. In my view, Steve's advice needs to be heard by every business owner as it could literally change your life. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. This is Steve Grace. G'day, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. Nice to be here. Thank you. Mate, it's a pleasure to have you and uh, and very much looking forward to hearing your story. At, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Buy, Build, Sell is the podcast, right? We're always talking to entrepreneurs who've been through this journey and, you know, it's exciting. I, I love people talking to people who've, you know, you've started businesses, you've built them, you've gone through these cycles and 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 you've you've even exited a couple of times. Luckily for me, I look a lot younger than I am. But, yes, I, <laughs> I, have, I have been through the journey a few times. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think, Ed, for, you know, those listening, of course, can't see this, but Steve and I are both follically challenged, I will call, say. And so I, somebody said to me the other day, Steve, they said you're, that I was in this um, – I'm going through an ageless period. You know, yeah. I'm not really aging so much. I said, well, get, getting rid of the hair actually has been, that's been the one benefit. <laughs> I don't think I have changed in about 18 years. <laughs> Maybe a couple of small lines, but not really. <laughs> yeah, well, you're looking great for that late sort of 20s. It's brilliant. <laughs> Mate, um, you, you know, a couple of businesses you've been through and you've done all this, but maybe you could just give a high-level kind of overview of your background. All right, yeah, I won't go into to too much detail, but um, like most people that end up in any form of recruitment, I fell into that by going into a recruitment company in London and and them offering me a job and it seemed like a good idea. It certainly seemed like the easiest idea. Um 
And I moved over to Australia in 1999 um, to do recruitment over here purely for weather. Really, honestly, London gets to you. I'd grown up there and I was just, I wanted a break of the rain and came here for weather and then then never left. And it was back in 2003, I started my first business, which I had for around seven years, which I exited, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I then had a a weird period off, which we can touch on if you like, where I did all sorts of weird things sort of globally because I wasn't allowed to operate in Australia at that time. I then bought into a second business that was very early stage and bizarrely exited that pretty much seven, eight years later as well. Um, and then had another six-month period where I didn't really do too much. And then that gave me the time to come up with the idea of the business that I'm in now, which is my, my third recruitment business. So that's probably a quick overview of What's happened in the last, what, 18, 19 years since I've worked for someone? Gosh, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've got to ask then, do you, do you um, classify yourself as being unemployable as well now? <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, even, <laughs> even when I sold my first business, there was quite a long earnout, and it was, I mean, I was just awful as an employee, awful. And, and I think now completely, um, I just don't think it would be uh, – I don't even, I don't know. I dream about having a job where you get paid the same amount of money every month, regardless of what you do. And I think of the pluses. And then I also think of the downsides of that. So I don't, I don't yeah. think it's <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, I certainly recall after my first business, we started our company, we bought into another one, and then we sold out. And, and I went back to corporate for a while. And I remember for the first six months, I kept laughing, going, this is so bloody easy. I've only actually got to do one job. This is this is amazing, and and I thought it was me. And then, of course, after a while, I realised why I hate corporates and why I needed to get out and go and do my own thing again. But it's um, you know, yeah, I, I think it's, I think most of the people we speak to, business owners, they are searching for some sense of freedom, you know, and and, and that means different things to different people, right? But I, I I think on its most simple terms, they just want to kind of do things their own way. I think it's freedom of thought more than freedom of time necessarily, although you can control your time. Freedom is probably not the right word for that, but definitely freedom of, of thought. I mean, that's why um, everyone who has a job has a hobby and everyone who owns a business doesn't. You know, I think it almost becomes your hobby, particularly if you've got children, then you've definitely got no hobbies. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I think you summed it up perfectly. It, working for yourself gives you freedom of thought or freedom of mind, and I think that's what I crave more than anything. Yeah, it makes sense. How did you know, um, you know, you, you went from working for someone else doing recruitment to starting your own recruitment company. Was there some kind of trigger on that journey that made you feel like or, or think to yourself, okay, you know what, this is, I, I'm ready for this. I want to do it myself. So there's a couple of things. One, um, my father had a very serious impact on me and that he had an injury and wasn't able to do his job and ended up starting all sorts of companies. So I saw him go and do that in areas he had no expertise in. So I guess somewhere along the line that had an effect on me. Um, in terms of the trigger for doing it, well, that was getting permanent residency in Australia. Um, but I think, and it was, it was not long after that <laughs> I did it, but I think it's more... It was more that I just hate being told what to do. Um, and <laughs> that does not make of a good employee at all. And even in a sales role where you get a lot of freedom, and I had a lot of freedom in recruitment, which is what kept me in it, I was still not allowed to do what I wanted to do. And I had great ideas as far as I was concerned, and I wanted to do them. So I think that frustration of not being able to, you know, we come back to that freedom of thought, not being able to do exactly what I want to do. sound like a real spoiled brat, but there is an element of that to it. I really do think there is. 
Yeah, look, and I, I actually get it, and I don't think it's being a spoiled brat. I think there's, uh, you know, it's not like you're sitting in the corner and having throwing tantrums. It's, you know, I, I, I found the same thing in terms of being in corporates and feeling stifled. You know, you, yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah, and I think I think a lot of people do. A lot of people out there are unhappy in their job, but they don't feel confident to leave it either, and so it becomes this quest to sort of hang on to what they've got and. And I always just sort of feel that that's not the right mindset to be creative and do special things. And, you know, I don't know. I think life's too short to not want to be inspired by what you're doing every day. So I, I think that's, you know, that was my experience. I don't know if that, that resonates with you at all. No, it does. I've thought lots about this. And I think, I think you're right. There's a lot of people aren't necessarily happy with what they do, but I also don't think they should start companies. You know, I've, I've had many a conversation with friends who, have wanted to go and start companies. And I've said to them, honestly, and I mean this in the greatest respect, you're, you're not going to enjoy it. You know, there's parts of it. I know, I know you and you're not going to enjoy it. It's, it's like going working in fashion or events. It's not what it's cracked up to be, right? So, yeah. And, and some of those people have done it and not enjoyed it. Others have stayed in their jobs and done really, really well and actually thanked me. So I think no matter how stifled you are, there are other ways of overcoming that. I don't think you should, I agree. I don't think you should just sit there and suck it up. Um, but I don't think starting a company is for everybody at all, and it is insanely stressful if it's not going well and, and can cause a lot of problems. So, yeah, it's, it's it's certainly. I think people need to find their own happiness, um, and I don't know if business ownership is defined that way. But um, I think it's the certain type of people it suits, and the certain type of it doesn't. And that's just that's like running or reading or spelling or any other musical instruments or anything in life. There's certain people that are suited to it, and certain people that aren't. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I don't want to assume anything here. When you started your first company, it, I, you know, it was. A, did you have family commitments or anything like that at that point in time, or were you no, on your own? In my or twenties, you remember those? Yeah. Days? No, no family <laughs> commitments. I could sit on my couch and eat beans if I wanted. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, it's a very different feeling starting a business in your 20s than starting this one I just did two years ago when you're 46, right? It's with two kids at private school and a mortgage. It's totally different feeling. Um, so, yeah, if you're going to do it, my advice is get out there <laughs> do it early because it's a lot easier in terms of the the overall stress, I think. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, I think. And, and, and I think you sort of touching on this before is the diff, different stresses and different things too. You know, it's, I found my time in corporate, you're like, you, you never worried about money. You got paid extremely well when I was in corporate, but it just, you, you're always worried about not having enough freedom. And then you go start a business, you've got all the freedom you bloody want, but then you're stressing about money. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> you know, there's, there's always one thing or another, right? It's, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so you built the business, the first business, uh, which was fingerprint consulting? Correct, yeah. Yeah, cool. So um, for seven years and then um, according to the press, I believe you, you, you sold to Data3, which is a listed company? We did. We did. So they, we weren't looking to sell that. They, they or was it them or I think it was a broker approached us. In fact, I do as a broker called Sean. Sean Winder approached us um, with two companies that were interested in buying us. And I was still young and it was like, oh, this is exciting. And um, in hindsight, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have sold it. Um, just like my first property I bought and all the other things that you have on the shares I bought that I sold and all that hindsight. But at the time, it was it was incredibly exciting because we'd been going hard for seven years. There was a slight, um, I think the, the, the reason that I probably pushed for it more was I had a business partner who was significantly older than me. 
And, you know, that's a word of warning to anyone out there. If you do have business partners at very different stages of life, it can create difficulties if you haven't sort of allowed for that. We didn't have a shareholders agreement then because I didn't know what they were. Um, and so disagreements were difficult to handle because there was no way or structure of dealing with it. And, you know, what I needed out of it and money and what he needed out of it money and the time I was willing to put in, the time he was putting in, they didn't match. And that sometimes causes resentment. It never got to a huge issue, but it, I could see it growing. Yeah. Look, and that's a, that's a common experience. It's um, very common. In fact, maybe a little too common, unfortunately. But um, so, so what, what was the shareholding? Was it 50-50 or did you have a different mix? Actually, or? So, you know, I hate to use this term because it sounds awful, but he was a bit of a sugar daddy in that he had 51, I had 49 because he didn't work in the business at all for probably the first 18 months maybe. Um, I just did everything and he put the money in that. It wasn't a great amount of money. I think it was $45,000 or something, which at the time was a lot for me. But, um, yeah, so that was kind of how we structured that. So he always had that extra 1%. Yeah, sure, sure, and and I think too, what's your, your point there about um, no shareholders agreement and stuff like that? I mean, there's no. I, I imagine you didn't sit down. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I imagine there was no conversation at the very beginning of, well, what does an exit look like, and you know, are we going to sell or are we going to hand down or whatever? It was a handshake in a pub, you know, classic, yeah, yeah, classic yeah. stuff. Which everybody <laughs> against, by the way. If you're young, don't do that. Come and talk to me. I'll give you some advice. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Oh, hindsight, the greatest teacher, right? <laughs> so, um, so it, it, that's interesting, though. So, what's um, by the time you got through seven years? Um, can you give us some sort of context to how how big the firm was? So, that's funny. I don't remember the turnover, which is really bizarre. And I think I was I was completely removed from the financials in those days. That was run by my business partner. I mean, we would we would talk about them quarterly, but I don't actually remember the turnover particularly well. But the business probably had like, probably 25, 26 staff. Um, we had a Melbourne office and a Brisbane office at that time. The Brisbane office was just an individual who had moved to Brisbane and wanted to work up there. The Melbourne office was the Melbourne office. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a good business. It was, it was a perm business. There wasn't a lot of contracts, another thing that you learn along the way. But it, it made good profits. It had great cash flow. Um, it had a really good name. And we were, we were sort of doing digital recruitment when digital was just becoming digital, right, when there was a difference between marketing and IT and digital was that thing that sort of was emerging. So it was so much fun. It was, it was one of the funnest things I've done, you know, growing a business at that time. It's, it's curious, and and for those you know listening who maybe have other service based businesses, um, you know, just to try to draw some parallels, I guess does does recruitment have any kind of um, I don't know sort of typical industry metrics they look at, like you know I don't know how many of that twenty five twenty six were client facing, but I, I know with a lot of service companies they'll say, well, we want our staff to be doing you know, X amount of revenue or X amount of sales per year or X amount of whatever. Um, do, do, are there standard metrics like that in recruitment? Absolutely. Um, I think, look, what they, and I don't necessarily agree with this now, but what the industry has always said is a third for the consultant, a third for the company and a third for the costs. So, you know, that's kind of how it's supposed to sort of go. So employee costs and profit, right, third, third, third. Um, and at that time, I guess you would expect it. 95% of your staff to be client-facing and revenue-generating, and you would expect them to be bringing in somewhere between three to maybe four hundred and fifty, maybe $500,000 worth of um, margin, if you like, or fees into the business at that time. Yeah, that makes and sense, yes. Yeah, so if, if you work that out, you know, you times 
you know, you're looking at a fairly decent turnover figure. Recruitment companies have very skewed turnover figures, particularly if they have a contract book, because you have these huge amount of contractors that can give you a hundred million turnover business, but it's only making four, right? So the, I think turnover is a bad measure of a recruitment company, but uh, but it was certainly very profitable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And and so um, you're humming along, um, a broker reaches out one day and suggests, you know, that he's got some potential buyers. Um, I mean, you kind of mentioned before, it's a bit exciting. I think uh, there's nothing quite more of an ego stroke than somebody reaching out and saying they want to buy your business. Particularly when you're young. Right? Yeah. I was early 30s, so it was very exciting. You know, you, you have these images of retiring on a yacht and all these kind of <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Occur, but um, yeah, it, it is a massive ego, and and I think it, it, particularly if it's your first business and you're young, it almost validates you. And I think regardless of what anyone says, humans are always looking for validation. So um, yeah, I think it was it was certainly that. That's for sure. Yeah, interesting. And and the broker themselves were they representing the buyer or or yourselves? In well, the they claim both, but they were representing the buyer without question. Um, yeah, they they had been tasked to go out and find recruitment companies. You know, they they always claim to be impartial and represent both parties equally. They of course they don't. Um, ultimately, we didn't pay him, so you know it's like it's like saying the real estate agent is looking after the the purchaser rather than the vendor. You know, you know really where it sits. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one, and and, and you know, Exit Advisory Group, our our primary firm, you know, is a licensed brokerage, and and you know, we're always abundantly clear that we represent one party. You know, it could be the buyer or the seller, but it's very very clear about you, you know, you can't sit on both sides of the fence. It's it's a conflict. You can't so, you know, um, rip anybody off, but at the same time, your interests are always are always going to be skewed one way. Yeah, and 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 just because you represent one party doesn't mean you don't act transparently and no, you know openly with the other party as well. But yeah, I mean, you, everyone's got to be clear about where they're getting paid, right? Sean, <laughs> Sean, um, was, Sean was pretty pretty open about everything. You know, he's pretty good. It's a very similar role to a recruiter in a lot of ways. You know, you don't, you yeah. don't want to mess around with candidates' lives, but ultimately you're you're working for the client. It's a similar sort of scenario. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. What when it comes to um, coming up with a number, like did they did they approach you and say? We have a kind of methodology or something like that. I mean, how would how was that? How did that approach work? There's a pretty standard sort of methodology in recruitment as to what that multiple looks like, and it's quite well known. It's not hard to work out, and the multiple really represents obviously. You know, they're buying goodwill; they're not buying any assets. So, you know, you look at your contractor book and how much value that's got. You look at your comp, your sort of signed agreements with clients, which again, of course, can be terminated. You look at the staff, all that kind of stuff, and then you look at how willing the founders are to stay and how long they are willing to stay and all those sorts of things affect multiples. They typically in recruitment sit between about three and eight um, in, as a multiple. There have been scenarios in not too distant future where Japanese companies have paid lunacy multiples of like 12, 18 and so forth. But mo- most recruitment businesses, particularly of our size, would sit somewhere between three and seven of a multiple of your profit. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's what I was going to ask: is a multiple of what? And so, so profit or EBITDA or some, some one of those profit EBITDA lines, right? Usually, yeah. Again, like I said, 
you know, turnover is so skewed because of contractor books. You know, you can get retail businesses that are based on turnover. You, you never get a turnover multiple in recruitment. If you did, you're the smartest seller in town. But, uh, yeah, be very rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> um, so so Data3, I, I don't I don't know a huge amount about Data3, I must admit. Um, a listed company, no doubt all of their, their financials and everything are publicly available. But I don't know offhand if you recall what kind of size they they were in terms of revenue or anything like that at the time? They were huge. I mean, uh, one of the reasons we went with them, because um, we, we met, actually, we ended up meeting four companies in the end because more buyers come out, out of the woodwork, right? As soon as, as soon as the broker thinks he's got a, an actual potential seller, suddenly there's others. So we met with quite a few. The reason we went with them is we liked them. You know, they were from Brisbane. Their reasons for buying were genuine. They, they had a recruitment business in Brisbane. They couldn't get it to work in Sydney, so they wanted to buy one. They they told the market from an ASX point of view that they were going to buy one. The window that they said they were going to buy it in was coming to an end, which meant we were in quite a good negotiating position. We understood that. So that was the reasons. But they were, gosh, I can't remember the turnover. I mean, they were a big, big business, insanely profitable Um Run by a gentleman called John Grant, who went on to run the NRL. I think I think he might even still do that now. But um, he was a, he was their most successful CEO. I'd been there twenty years, and it was a it was a very very strong Australian business. Yeah, fabulous. Um, we've talked about this on the show uh, in prior episodes, but um, about why listed companies as acquirers can be quite attractive, um, just because of the arbitrage they play. Uh, in in the actual multiples, um, so you know if they paid uh, a five times EBITDA for you, but they trade it, you know, twenty times. <laughs> once they've put your business through the wash, you know, they they've basically made a five time return on their money pretty quickly, or a four times return on their yeah. money pretty quickly. And that, was, that was the scenario we had. I mean, we got a multiple of seven, which was extremely high. Um, wow, well, uh, well done. Which was which was great. Um, we had a three year earnout, which was way too long. But I, there was a lot of stuff that happened. I, don't, I, I won't mention the law firm that we used, but I don't feel we were particularly well advised because we were very inexperienced. And they ended up, rather than buying the business, they bought the assets. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of tax problems with them doing that that weren't explained to both myself and my founder that we had to deal with. Um, and there, was a number, there was a number of issues with the sale that we probably didn't know. I think what people do need to understand is when they're selling a business, my gosh, your advisors are so important. There are so many complexities and nuances that I know of now that you trust the person to tell you um, that unfortunately were not communicated particularly well for us. So um, selling assets and selling a business are two very, very different things. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and having a good deal team to sort of point out the potholes is, is critical. The the and, and just that that asset versus business sale, you know, once again for those listening, I mean, if you're thinking of selling, talk to your accountant about small business concessions and the difference between, you know, selling the shares of your company versus just stripping out the assets. It uh, it does make a big difference. So that that's really interesting. And, and once again, look, congrats. I mean a seven time multiple is is excellent. And you know, I I'm sure you know, with your other experience now, if you were probably proud then, but you know, certainly, I don't know if you see a lot of other transactions out there, but not a lot of recruitment agencies are getting sevens. So, um, so that that is a great effort. It, yeah, and I, and I think you know we touched on this before. It didn't end up being what we dreamt of because of world events. But if we hadn't have had the GFC, it would have been an absolutely awesome deal. And you know, that was no one's fault. It wasn't data three fault? It wasn't our fault? It wasn't anyone's fault? It's was just a world event that happened during the earnout and the way that we'd structured the earnout was we'd put 
a lot of the multiple on the back end of the deal, which was how we got a bigger deal because we were staying a longer earn out, um, which unfortunately didn't eventuate because the world fell over. Um, and that, you yeah. know, that's just one of those things you can't control. Yeah, yeah. Was it? Was it? So was the the um, the consideration predominantly weighted towards earnout, or was there a portion up front, or anything like that? There was a portion up front. The portion up front was minimal. Um, and it was you know it was, it was a nice nice check to stick in your bank account. There's no question. And then the first year was a small, and the multiples were done on each year over the three years. So the biggest multiple was actually the second year. Um, so the first year was small. Then so, so I think it was it. Went, I can't understand how it went. Did it go? There was an upfront amount, then there was a multiple of two on the first year. I was going back a long way now. I think it was a multiple of three and a half on the second year and then the remaining multiple on the last year. I think that was how we structured it, which, again, was looking at the deals I've done since and working with startups as so much as I do now. It was a really unusual way of, of doing it. And I think they they were obviously far more experienced than we were. But, it, you know, if, if we hadn't had the GFC, it would have really worked out well for us. And, unfortunately, it was probably – eight months into the year now when that happened and we went from having 400 live jobs down to about 20 overnight. Oh, wow. And yeah. I had to make redundant. The first, one, first and last time I've ever done it, and it wasn't my choice, obviously, because it wasn't my business then, but I had to make redundant, I think, probably 40% of the staff, which was really horrific, you know, staff that have been performing. So it was, uh, you know, it was an unfortunate timing, but it was, I learned, uh, yeah, and I hate it when people say this, but I learned so much from that. If only we could learn this much from success rather than, <laughs> not that it was a failure, but it wasn't a great time in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's, you're so right, isn't it? I mean, we always learn more from things that don't necessarily work the way we expect them to. You know, I, I agree with you. They're not failures. It's it's lessons, it's experience, it's learning, it's it's all that stuff. But, it, um, but as you say, I mean, we'd all much rather take a nice big fat check and go away and still take some wisdom with it as well. <laughs> yeah, that would have been that would have been far more preferable. But you know, it is what it is. So, uh, <laughs> totally. It was an interesting experience. Um, and then you know, one of the things we didn't talk about was I actually didn't want to. I didn't want to do the whole three years. I found you know you talked about my unemployable. I found the three year earnout almost so painful, and I managed to negotiate. I actually forego my last payment to leave a year early. That's how much I hated working for someone. Um, so I had a multiple coming on that, you know, we had a shocking second year um, and I had a new, I got a new lawyer who I still use today has become a very close friend of mine and has done all my deals since who got me out of that last year and it wasn't easy to get out of that either. Uh, but I, I did get out of that and um, that was a, that was a good thing. So I ended up only actually doing a two year and a half. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so, um, and I was going to ask you the question about transition periods and stuff like that, but it sounds like, you know, you had a, a multitude of things there that were challenging. H- how did you find the kind of interpersonal stuff when you, you know, you've, you've sold, you're, you're sort of the boss, but not really anymore. And, and it's, you know, was it, did you, did you find it, you know, what, what, what did you find that like, you know, from a personal perspective, I guess, that, just going and. That wasn't such an issue because John Grant was a love, he was a good guy. He was a good CEO. I respected him. He's a very smart guy. He had a good CFO who's now the CEO, I think, of, of, um, of Data3 now. Um, and there were some great people in the company. What I couldn't stand was the culture. You know, it was it was so slow. It was the ridiculous amount of meetings that, to me, was so pointless. Um, <laughs> it was everybody agreeing with whatever the person at the top said. It was at 5.30, there's literally not a soul in the office. It was things like that which are the opposite of how I naturally am. So that's what I found difficult. I think the company was very well run, and if you liked a corporate business, perfect. But for me, it was... 
it was basically putting me in an environment that I that I didn't like. It's like putting someone that doesn't drink and saying, right, you got to spend two years with a whole bunch of drunk people in a bar. It's just it just wasn't right. I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it at all. Yeah, yeah. And and what I mean, that's a critical tip, you know, for people to be thinking about the post transaction. I think it's easy to get caught up in the moment and not be thinking about that next step, or or maybe sugarcoating in your own mind what it might be like. But well, uh, you definitely sugarcoat. And you know, the thing was, I liked the people, and we went with them because I liked the people, and I still like the people. It wasn't the people that I should have checked out. It was the culture of the business that I didn't go into. We had many a meeting, and I was like, I really like these people. I like the way they think. What I didn't like was the way they ran their day to day operations. And the, I think that's what you've got to look into. You know, what environment am I walking into? They let us stay separate for about six months and then they brought us into their head office, which was pretty much the worst day of my life. Yeah, um, wow. Moving from our cool, funky offices in, in the city down at Circular Quay into North Sydney into a corporate grey sort of environment with pods. And I was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, I can't think what the word is, soul destroying. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I hear you, yeah. Oh, oh man, so big learning lesson. Um, and, and what happened after that? You said you, you went off and did some quirky stuff. Like, we, we love quirky on this show. Well, I wasn't allowed <laughs> to operate in Australia at all. So um, I don't know if anyone's aware of there, but in the recruitment industry, there is another industry called the recruitment to recruitment industry, as ridiculous as that might sound, which is recruiters finding recruiters for recruitment companies because we don't have time to do it ourselves. And... I don't, I've never thought that industry is great. It actually has, these days, it's actually quite good. Back then, it was shocking. It was, and if you failed as a recruiter, you used to go into that industry. And so I thought, I'm going to go and do that. But I couldn't do it in Australia. So I thought, well, you know, I'm from London. I love Hong Kong and Singapore. So I started taking Australian and British recruiters and placing them into recruitment companies in Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, and I did that really as an excuse to go to Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, and I did that, and I, I started with a mate of mine in London, um, who now works with me at Nudge, interestingly, but um, he runs Nudge London for me now. But I grew up with him, and we started that business called Human Consulting. We only did it for four months. I hated it. Um, I enjoyed the trips, but I hated the recruitment to recruitment part. So we did it for a while. It really was just an excuse to travel. I think we made a tiny profit, and then we just closed it down. But um, it was it was something to do. <laughs> well, and if, if it funded your trip and you had a good time, then that's uh, you know a big tick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. It did. It funded my year of, of just really drinking in Asia. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nice. So so take us on to the journey. Like, what's you know you mentioned you then bought into another business, and that's that's a very different approach to uh, to getting into your next um, you know your next venture. Wasn't planned. Um, it was a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, who I'd known for twenty odd years now, uh, maybe a bit longer. He had a business, a recruitment business that he'd started not, you know, a few years after I'd started Fingerprint and it was going okay, but um, he wasn't growing. It just wasn't going the way he wanted it to. And he's a very operational numbers, analytical kind of guy. And he didn't really have a sales leader in there. Um, And, you know, my skills are very much the sales and the leadership and, and my skills are not the analytical side. So we thought, well, maybe this could work. Um, and we actually decided this uh, Swans game, bizarrely, and I don't think I've been to a Swans game since. But uh, <laughs> Hopefully that's not linked. <laughs> um, but we did meet again afterwards and say, okay, let's talk about it again. And, you know, it was a, it was a difficult decision because we were very close friends. Um, but I, I bought into that 50-50 this time. Um, I was adamant about that. And with that business was probably turning over a mil or so. And when I left, it was probably closed turning over 45. You know, so over the six, seven years, we had great success we grew a strong brand. We grew a strong contract business. You know, I'd taken all the lessons I'd learned 
Um, I think we'd always had a view that one day we would exit it, um, and but we hadn't really planned it. We did have a shareholders agreement. Um, we tried many things during the years. We tried having a CEO come on board. That didn't work particularly well. Lots Again, lots more learning experiences. And then two years before I did leave, I was going to leave. I felt like the partnership was going the wrong way. Again, we got to a stage where it was getting so big and successful, we had different views on where we wanted to take it. Um, which, again, happens very often with um, co-founders, particularly when there's two. It's probably less so much when there's three or four, when there's two very much so. I, we're very different people, very different skill sets, which is great to a point until you just completely start disagreeing. And I can see it not going the right way. And I said to him, I want to leave, and he wanted to buy out. And we were about to do that. And for some strange reason, he said to me, oh, why don't you just stay and we'll build it to sell. Let's just sell it. You know, let's, and, and I reluctantly agreed. Um, and it was all hugs and away we went. And then over the two years, I pretty much hated the next two years. Um, and we did grow it some more and we did still plan on selling it. But it, the relationship, unfortunately, broke down. And I almost blame myself for this. I shouldn't have stayed because we don't have a relationship anymore, unfortunately. Um, and it got to a point um, maybe three years ago now where I went away for Easter on holiday to Byron and I never came back into the office and he bought the business off me on the 1st of July. And it was an awful experience. Um, it was an awful um, exit. It ruined a friendship. It, uh, you know, our kids don't talk. A lot of things were lost during that. It didn't end well. The negotiation at the end fell apart completely. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't good for him. It probably wasn't good for me. Um, business is still around. But. That selling from a business partner to a business partner, unless it's a planned and it's very much a, um, and I think you have to plan it quite well and sort of, it, it, it all became very sudden because of difficulty. It's, all, it's like a divorce. Um, and it's, it's messy and the kids, as did the staff, don't enjoy it. Um, and I removed myself from the office and worked for the last four months from home. It, it was, not, I don't recommend that to anyone. I think if ever you see a scenario where you can see that coming, um, you need to start planning and work out a nice way because ultimately I wanted the business. Um, he wanted the business as well. He thought it was his because he founded it. I thought that was fair enough, so I, so I walked away. But um, it was a great shame because we did so many incredible things with that business, so many. I mean, it was such a success for so long, and I had so much fun apart from the last two years. The last two years were the worst two years I've had in, in my career, I think, in terms of enjoying wow. it. We still succeeded during those two years, but I really, really did not enjoy myself at all. I wasn't a happy person. You can ask my wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I can appreciate that. It's. I think any time it's the relationships start to fray or come apart, it's it's challenging. You know, I, I would say, um, you know, you just came in and it was one million, and you know, you get it up to forty-five or wherever million in turnover. I, I, I'd say that you just as equally responsible for the outcomes of the success of that business. There's no... It wasn't, it wasn't one of us who did that. You know, if we hadn't been together, I don't think we would have necessarily achieved that at all. So you know, that journey was achieved together. I just felt, I just think the last two years was, was two years too many. You know, not everything is meant to go forever. No, absolutely. And out of interest, did your shareholders' agreement um, stipulate how this kind of thing would work or have any kind of references in it? Here's a good life lesson for everyone out there. So <laughs> when we created it, yes, it did, absolutely. Um, and it had what was called a Texan Holden clause in there, which means that, you know, if it really can't come in, there was a, there were a whole bunch of ways you could deal with um, disagreement. But if it comes to a point where you just can't agree, 
you you only want to buy each other out. You both put a piece of paper on the you know you write a number on a piece of paper and put it on, and the biggest number wins, right? So that's that's the sort of the final straw. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned to you, about three years prior, we decided to put in a CEO because we were trying to scale it, and we thought maybe we should get a CEO in to help us do that, who's perhaps done it before. Um, it, that didn't work, but the problem was he came in as a shareholder, and when he came in as a shareholder, that clause is removed because there's suddenly three shareholders, so you can't have a text and holders clause. And when he left, we didn't put it back. So when we got to this point of no return, there was no clause to deal with that. So then it just comes down to a battle of wills, and and it, if and we're both quite stubborn, and it would have ended up killing the business, you know. And that's the point you have it in is that you can end up killing your business by by not having a way out. And we'd had a way out, and we'd removed it, and that was really frustrating. You know, and there's there's a lesson. If you're going to do a shareholders agreement, every time you put one in or out, make sure you amend it. And we didn't amend it when they left. You know, it was his shares hadn't vested, so he didn't feel like we needed to actually change it. Yeah. Oh, look, what a what a fantastic piece of advice. Um, you know, and I'd even say, even if you're not, you don't have a big event like a new CEO coming in. I mean, if you haven't pulled out your shareholders agreement and read it in the last two to three years, get it out and have a look. <laughs> you know, it doesn't hurt to review it from time to time, right? And just say, hey, is this fit for? Yeah, is it fit for purpose? You need you need to keep these things up to date, and you don't. Most people don't. And um, that that was, I remember reading it, and my heart just sinking and going, yeah. can't believe it. And my lawyer was like. I remember why, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> yeah, wow. So, so he, when he, did he buy you? At, when he bought you, and I don't want to pry too deeply here into something that might be sensitive. But did you, did you get consideration for it? Was there an actual deal, or you know, how, how did that all? Valued. We got it valued, um, and we agreed a price. Unfortunately, that wasn't the price that was paid at the end for a variety of reasons. Both his and my behaviour at the end was both despicable. I think both of us. I don't think either one of us could. Uh, say we were worse than the other, but unfortunately the price we agreed was not the price that was paid. Um, but, you know, in reflection, looking back on it, I, I think it was probably fair all round for everybody. It, you know, it's one of those things. Who's to know? But we did, we had it independently valued. The business was so big, we had to have it audited every year anyway, and we had planned to sell it. So we had engaged a broker to actually sell the business uh, just before all this sort of collapse of everything. Um, and um, so we had a, we had a valuation, and I think you have to. It's very important to do that because you can't argue with an independent valuation. Um, yeah. So, oh well, mind you, people do. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, you know, it's it's yeah. Look, I've they do. Seen people it. play games for no reason yeah. other than their own egos, and you know these things happen. But at the end of the day, it, it got done. And for me, even though I probably didn't get what I what I wanted, and I'm sure he paid more than he wanted to, because that's how everyone always thinks. Um, the the sense of relief of not being involved in that business because I really did feel trapped in there because there was no way out in the shareholders agreement was worth you know anything uh, and I would have ultimately and if he listens to this now he might laugh but I would have taken nothing to get out in the end <laughs> so um, you know it, it was at that point unfortunately yeah yeah so wow you know you've had this. Quite a ride, um, a couple of exits. Yeah, high <laughs> build soul. You've done the cycle completely. Now, oh, now, yeah. <laughs> join the club. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so now you've you've started a new business. So you're at the very very beginning of a new build phase, I guess. Two years, as, uh, two years into a new one. Gosh, two club time goes so fast. I can't believe it's two years already. It's insane. Yeah, I know. Don't blink, right? Jeez. Um, so t- tell us a bit about the current business. 
So the current business, so I wanted to do something, I, like I said to you, when I left um, Ashdown, I, I didn't want to be in recruitment. I was done with it. Um, I came up with a like, whole bunch of stupid ideas. I was going to create a Chinese tourism business. That would have gone well. <laughs> of other healthcare businesses that would have all been shot to pieces through COVID. So, but in the end, I think as time went on, probably about six months, um, I think I was reading a book that was saying, you know, if you build up all this knowledge and experience in the industry, don't go and try and do something you don't know how to do. That's just idiotic. So I was like, okay, how can I make recruitment work for me? And I thought, well, I love the startup space because I love startups myself um, and I love the unbridled optimism that founders have and I love the fast growth and I love the lack of structure. And I'm not a structured person. I like, I like chaos. Um and so I thought, well, we dealt with startups at Ashdown and at Fingerprint, and and I know a few startup owners, and the relationship between recruiters and startups is not good. It doesn't really work. There's a variety of reasons for that, which I, which I won't go into now. So I then sat around for three months trying to work out how I could solve all the issues on the recruiter side and all the issues on the startup side and created the Nudge Group and, and launched it to just do that, that space. Had no idea it was going to work or not, and it's exploded. I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, I say I like simplicity. I came up with all these complex ideas and products that I thought were amazing and everybody hated them, but they loved the three or four basic stuff that I had in there. And so yeah. we threw away all the things I spent months coming up with and stuck <laughs> with the basics. Uh, and we, we we don't do recruitment the same as other recruiters at all. We do a lot of things differently, um, which has made it really exciting for me because I've had to learn um, the way we develop business, the way we deal with business, the way we build, the way we – all those kinds of things. We went global almost instantly and it's grown at this insane rate and continuing to and i and i just love it and it's it i've been lucky that everyone i've employed so far has worked for me in one of my businesses previously like the uk office is now run by jason who helped me with my company that was called human consulting that was the uh, the rec to rec that i did he's now running uk um, and then everyone here has either worked for me at fingerprint or worked for me at candle my first very job when i was an employee or worked for me at ashdown and some of them have worked for me at multiple places so we've got this team that I know as well, and we've, we're eight people, and we've had a cra- cracking year. COVID has been quite good to us because you can imagine most startups are e-commerce or they're cloud or they're SaaS. So oh, a couple of months last year where it looked a bit dicey, um, it's just gone nuts. And um, it, it's reinvigorated my passion. Um, as you know, I've started a sort of TV show, um, which is uh, which I really enjoy doing filming and, ed- and editing and on the whole media channel, which has now led to me and it got announced today. I don't know if you saw it, but we've just bought a website called um, Balance the Grind. And Balance the Grind is the number one work-life balance website. And about 100,000 readers. We just bought that um, site and made it part of the Nudge Group. And we're going to sort of use that. So we're now got these two media channels that we use to promote all the startups we work with as well. Um, and they're starting to come on, and they're now working in the Nudge Group as well. So that was that was really exciting. That literally got announced today, I think. And just I'm just doing, and I love, you know, operating the US and the UK and Asia and Canada and Europe. These things I haven't done before, so I'm doing so many things I haven't done before, but I'm doing it in an area that I know really well. So yeah. it's a really cool combination. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, I have, having the confidence around knowing your stuff, but then having the excitement of going into new areas, uh, it sounds like the perfect blend. And no co-founders. Strangely enough, I don't know why. So if anyone's not heard the first part of this this, this podcast, rewind and you'll understand that statement. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, mate, that sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm going to uh, ask you the, the big question, um, Steve, you know, 
um, if there is one tip that you would share, and, and maybe maybe that was part of it. But uh, before I, before I put you on the spot with that, mate, are you happy for people to reach out and connect and, and do all that sort of good stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. So the easiest way is always always LinkedIn. We do have, and this is this is something I'm really putting myself out for. I don't know how this is going to go. We're about to launch a new website that we've spent quite a long time building, six months on. It's incredible. I'm so excited. It's completely different to any other recruitment website you've ever seen. But in there. I'm actually going to have a section where you can book an appointment directly into my calendar through that calendar app. I'm just going to put it out there on the web and, and see what happens. So in, a, in I think about three weeks' time, you can do it that way. I, I, who knows? My calendar might just explode. But usually LinkedIn is easily the best way. You know, I'm, I'm on there. My, my email address is on there. My mobile's on there. Um, shoot me a message on there. Absolutely. Awesome. And as we keep saying on this show, don't be one of those strange people who just goes and sends a connection request with no message. It's like it's like standing in a bar and staring at somebody. Put a note in there. Let Steve know that you heard you know heard him on the podcast. At least he'll have some context as to where you're coming from. So you know, I had a better analogy for that the other day. It's weird, right? Not yeah. staring at someone in a bar. It's like someone in a bar coming up to you and just throwing a drink in your face and expecting you to smoke. <laughs> exactly. It is just odd, right? I mean, you just people have this misconception that online is somehow different to the real world. Well, I mean, it is from a physical perspective, but at the end of the day, people are people, right? I mean, it's it's about relationships. It's about actually treating people with respect and courtesy and actually building some kind of connection. Well, I've changed mine now so you can follow me or connect. And yeah. most people choose to follow because they don't want to say anything. So I'm fine with that. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's brilliant, Steve. Um, look, of course, we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes here and, and put up your website. And, um, and, and I don't know if I've got that, uh, the new website that you just bought because it's so new. But, um, look, if you're happy for us to share that as well, we'll put it up there for you yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely put the Give It A Dutch YouTube up and definitely put Bounce The Grind because those two things are, I think they're really engaging channels that we use. So, yeah, have a look at that for sure. And if anyone's interested in coming on that Balance the Ground website, please do reach out as well. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. Other than the tip, I'm I'm putting you on the spot here. Other than the tip of uh, be careful of co-founders, but uh, is there is there one other tip that uh, you might share with uh, with your fellow entrepreneurs? Beware the co-founder. I like that. I should get that on the t-shirt. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think I think the I've read a zillion books. Right. Um, I, I consume books about success. I've got to stop doing it. And I also I read what I love more than anything is biographies. And I think the thing that I've taken out of all of them, and the thing that I definitely know is true. And this doesn't matter for me whether you are, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but I think it applies particularly to businesses because running a business is such an up and down ride. You know, recruitment is always called champagne and razor blades because it's an up and down ride. And I think <laughs> businesses, I don't know, you'd have to put that on steroids, whatever the heck that is, but let's um, not even think about that. I th- it, it's you just got to keep going. You know, the only way you can fail is if you stop. And I know people say that. But it's really easy to stop. And that doesn't mean you shut the business down. But the amount of nights I have sat here, and I and I do profess that you need a work-life balance, but I also profess that you, you do need to work some crazy hours at times. Not all the time, but at times. But the amount of nights I've sat here or I've just finished dinner and I don't want to work and I don't want to go back to my computer and I don't want to do that search or I don't, but you go and do it. That's what is that to me, that's the difference between the people that succeed and don't. And you don't have to do it every single time, but probably eight out of ten times, if you know you have to do it, you have to do it. And if you do it, 
it will come back to you. Might not feel like it. Find ways of doing it. Personally, I use music when I'm really down and I don't want to do something. I put my earbuds in and I play loud music and that, that keeps me going through whatever I'm trying to do, even though it might distract my concentration. Um, but yeah, it's just don't stop. It's it's really the only answer, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Grit. Have enough grit. Push through. Right? Yeah, that's it. Push through what you don't want to do. Oh, look, that's awesome. Um, Steve, thank you so much for your time. I, I'm, I'm really appreciative. I'm grateful that you've shared your story with us. I know that people will take a lot away from from this particular episode and, and you know, people should reach out to you. I hope they do. You know, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. It's been, it's been good fun. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.